When it is true fear, we get adrenaline, for example. That's the famous hormone. The less famous hormone is the brain chemical cortisol. And cortisol prepares the body for combat. The problem is it's toxic. And so if you stay in cortisol, because there's another news story, because there's another... Gavin DeBecker is the author of the 1997 bestseller, The Gift of Fear, and one of America's leading security experts. He's a three-time presidential appointee, and among his clientele are people like Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. When you are afraid, you'll take any train that's leaving the station, even if it's not going where you want to go. How have governments exploited and weaponized fear? What is it that makes a society irrational? And how can people take back power from governments? You look around and you see people in the car alone wearing a mask or two, and you say, oh, wow, we are really divided here in terms of our critical thinking. And what would all governments like to get rid of? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Gavin DeBecker, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, thank you. At the very beginnings of the pandemic in March of 2020, you uh, advised your clients. I, I think of it as a kind of a cascade of, of logic that you presented where you said, this, this isn't gonna be a big deal. How is it that we knew all these things in March of 2020 and you know, the unthinkable happened? Well, I think for sure, you know, I, I never said it's not going to be a big deal in terms of the government reaction and overreaction, but I did have an opportunity to look at the virus itself in terms of mortality. And at that time, all we had was one metric. You're over 60, you're going to die. And we didn't really have any, any accurate information about mortality. What was this new virus? And then it came out of Italy. The Italian government produced a report, and we got that. And I then answered many clients' questions about their actual risk, which is highly age-stratified. Very Age is a, is, a, is a key element in the thing. But what we learned in that Italian report is that about uh, the average age of deaths attributed to COVID was 81 which means that those people who died had already lived beyond the national lifespan by four or five years. Uh, additionally, they had uh, 2.7 fatal comorbidities on average. When you looked at people whose deaths were attributed to COVID and, uh, and did not have any other 
uh, fatal diseases or fatal medical issues. Um, it was less than 1% of the people. You had to jump through eight hoops in order to die. First, you had to be old. Secondly, you had to already be sick. Uh, thirdly, you had to uh, have symptoms. Then you had to ignore the symptoms. Then you had to, after a few days of ignoring the symptoms, uh, the symptoms go to the doctor. Then you had to get uh, sent to the hospital. Then the hospital had to admit you, which is only 15% of people. And then you had to end up in the critical care unit, which was only 15% of those people. And then you had to die. And when all was said and done, you had about a 95% chance of not dying if you were 81 years old. And I was talking to clients who were in their 50s and 60s. So the reality is that the, the fear did not match the, the reality of the risks associated with the virus. And then if you were young, uh, you, you literally had very low risk other than the risk of ending up in a hospital in a critical care unit and being intubated, which now, of course, we know that the intubation was uh, with, with high pressure intubation and, and the ventilators was a... Uh, a profound medical mistake uh, that led to a lot of deaths. The thing that I've been thinking about, and you know, you're the perfect person to have here on the show uh, to talk about, is the social contagion, the the nudging, the fear. Of course, the gift of fear is your is your very famous book. Um, but it, it's amazing that you kind of came into this from a very different mm. side of things, right? Yeah. It has always been so that uh, nations throughout history and people in power have used fear to control the conduct of their citizens. Because what do all governments ultimately fear? It isn't the enemy on the outside. It is your own citizens. That is what destabilizes governments. And, you know, every king and queen uh, looks over the castle wall, and there's always a high wall, and they see the citizens fighting with each other, and they congratulate the, the king congratulates the queen or vice versa because as long as they're fighting with each other down there, as long as they're disagreeing with each other, they're not coming over the wall. And the strategies for unifying people around a particular thought or belief system was always fear. My work having to do with how fear is used and, and used by news media and used by government, you know, I got the greatest experiment in my, in my life in the last three years because there it was all in front of me, uh, you know, people using fear and then energizing citizens to be afraid of each other and all of these things that came together rather wonderfully for uh, governments all over the world, not just the U.S. government, right? Governments all over the world exploited this. When you do lockdowns, and you say people can't go on the beach and people can't go to concerts and can't go to church for God's sake or not for God's sake. When you do that, you've really divided people in a very profound way that other governments in world history would have loved to have been able to do. You could keep the people apart. So if you picture us, you know, if we go to a Bruce Springsteen concert, you don't look over at, at a person over there and say, oh, he voted for Trump, oh, he voted for Biden, oh, he doesn't agree with me, oh, he's a bad person. You just enjoy the music. Day at the beach, you see a father with his two kids and you're a father with your two kids. There's no judging. We're just here to, to go to the beach. But when you take that away, when there are no more of those social encounters or social environments, all you are left with is social media at home and very quickly, I hate that guy. Oh, look at that guy. Look what he said. And it's the content which we know. YouTube's algorithm is to get you more and more emotionally invested. And it's not the emotion of love very often. It's the emotion of hostility and anger and and uh, suspicion. And that's what we were left with, totally divided. Working at home, 
is another example where the citizens do not get together. And I just give you, a, a, from, from historic uh, perspective, you know, you have King Charles. In England, he outlawed coffee houses. And the reason was that coffee houses were places where people were stimulated and they were talking about the king or the, the government in ways that the king didn't like. And so coffee houses, and then chocolate was similarly, you couldn't sell chocolate either. Eventually he had to give it up because people wanted coffee and chocolate. Well, so, so that's an interesting example. But so my lesson from that example is somehow even though he was the king and yes. you know, had greater powers than, than let's say the, the powers here in the United States would have by quite a margin, I would say, the, peop the, the, the people still actually got those houses back somehow. Yes, right. it's true. Yeah, yeah. When, whenever the people don't listen, uh, it will change quickly. It's a little bit like when you, you, know, you, you say to a dog, here, I'm going to show you how this dog does tricks, and the dog sits down, and you say, sit, afterwards. Uh, in other words, you, you must just demonstrate that you have the power to gain compliance. And so what happens is, I'll give you a real good example from Los Angeles. During the lockdowns, it was 4th of July. And the mayor came out the day before and did a press conference, Garcetti, did a press conference saying absolutely no fireworks this year. It's dangerous. You don't want to be outside. You don't want to be with people. You don't want to be, be gathering together. No fireworks this year. So the next night came, and you can find it probably still on YouTube, uh, of what Los Angeles looked like that night from the hills. It was surely the largest fireworks display in the history of Los Angeles. People just said, we aren't staying in. We're not going to listen to you. And the next day, when he he threatened the day before, you'll be arrested, uh, you know, utilities will be turned off, we mean business, that, not a word about it. The mayor did not come out and say, hey, remember I told you no fireworks, you all broke the rules, no arrests, nothing happened. Because when the public doesn't go along with it, the government has to quickly backtrack. It is ever thus and always thus. That is the way it is. And so how do you get them to go along with it? Fear. That's very interesting, because this is, I, I remember, you know, the Emergencies Act uh, in Canada being invoked mm. uh, again, you know, to to stop the truckers movement. Yes. But as a lot of people were expecting uh, that it would last a while, but then suddenly, as quickly as it got initiated, it was gone. Yeah. Well, the people saw um, how afraid, uh, got desperate, and afraid governments can be, and that's when they act with seeming power. Uh, that usually represents a failure of government, meaning a, a failure of government's strength. And uh, because they, look what they did. I mean, they, you know, froze people's bank accounts so that they, their families couldn't buy food. And then they did that terrible thing of uh, all those donations, $10 million frozen. In the beginning, by the way, that was a, not, it was GoFundMe. Uh, in the beginning, they weren't even going to return the money in the first round. And then there was protest about that. And the, then they decided to return the money. And, uh, but none of the money got to the people. And so you saw, oh, Interesting, government will go that far. Uh, these governments that are, you know, presumably the most, you know, liberal governments in the world, United States, Canada, Germany, Austria. Austria was insane. You know, Austria said if you're not vaccinated later on, you have to stay in your home and pay a monthly fine. What was the most interesting about Austria is that they ended in one day. They just, but they just stopped it all which Australia was, uh, was nuts in another way, and, and New Zealand didn't end it quickly and, you know, doubled down on things. But for some reason, and I don't pretend to understand it, Austria just went, oh, okay, sorry, and all of it disappeared. I want to go back to March of 2020 when you're, you know, you're writing this report, you're sending it out to your clients. Are you already seeing 
some sort of activity of this you know, fear injection. Laura Dodsworth wrote this amazing book on the UK. She actually documented there were nudge government, nudge units yes. actively seeding fear into the population. But back then, were you actually documenting then you know, this fear being kind of spread? And this is something you were advising on already? Well, it, it, not in the beginning, because what I, I, what I knew was coming uh, is that it will be exploited. Because anything, anything that's a that's a uh, that's got the public's attention in any direction, a public figure is arrested, and everybody's focusing on that, or a, a, an act by some overseas government, and everybody's focusing on that. They will be exploited because attention is now, uh, you know, highly measurable through social media, and you can see where it's aiming and what it is. So I knew it would be exploited, and I did not, however, uh, realize the extent of the organized campaign. Uh, to to uh, produce uh, maximum fear in, in the citizenry, and in the case of the UK, now we're seeing their emails, uh, you know, that are that are released that are absolutely saying we, we need to scare them again, we need to scare them more. You know, it just occurs to me it would be great to, if you could if you could just tell me about where you're coming from here, like you've, give me a sense of your background. So it's something 25 odd years ago you wrote the gift of fear, mm. but you wrote that based on some very serious lived experience. And tell me about your background. It's actually very, very interesting. Well, I, I grew up uh, in, uh, in Los Angeles. By the time I was 10, we had lived in 10 places. My mother was a heroin addict, uh, and, and uh, we were on food stamps. We had absolutely no, uh, you know, no money. She was a single mother with three kids. And in a sense, we were all addicted to heroin. It was only in her bloodstream, but it affected all of us in terms of when you don't get it, we're all affected, and when you have to get it. Uh, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant consumer product because it, it has removed all choice from the equation. When I'm in the store and I look at a chocolate bar or a pair of shoes or something, I say, is, is it worth trading this $9 for that, you know, that product or this $2 or whatever it is? Uh, with, with addictive drugs, uh, heroin, opioids, um, that transaction, uh, that mental thought process is not part of the transaction. There's no choice in the business. And so we were in that uh, ugly commerce uh, as kids. And uh, I saw a lot of violence. I saw my mother shoot my stepfather when I was 10. Uh, and, uh, and many, many, you know, tremendously disruptive things. And I think I came through that with, uh, with more compassion for people who are in fear. Uh, and, and more understanding of it, and also uh, with a sense that, uh, with a highly unconventional view of society. And then I, uh, my mother committed suicide when I was 16, and uh, uh, she was 39. For many years, Jan, when I would tell the story I just told you, I would confuse and say she was 16 and I was 39. That is how interwoven the, the damage of that experience, uh, you know, became. And, and uh, where you, you really don't know who's who in, in a circumstance like that with, with suicide of a parent. And I want to also say for anybody who's experienced suicide and people who haven't as well, that when you, you say, well, that must have been tremendously you know, uh, traumatic, the suicide, but you can be sure when there's a suicide that all the times before it were also traumatic. Right? They don't just come out of nowhere. There's a, there's a whole lead up to suicides and to suicide attempts. So I came out of that if nothing else, is a highly creative thinker. Because like everything that you thought was true uh, when, when you or most people were growing up, I already knew wasn't true. Meaning that the order of society was, we were, 
we were hiding, basically, everything I just told you, right? In school, I was hiding injuries from being beaten. In school, I was, of course, we were hiding the fact that my mother was a heroin addict because that would lead to us being taken away. I didn't even understand it. The, the first time I ever said the word was in the emergency room at UCLA. Someone said to me, my mother had taken an overdose of pills, sleeping pills, and the nurse was filling out a form, and she said, is your mother on any other medications? And I said, yes, heroin. It was the first time I'd ever said the word, and only the second time I'd ever heard the word. I knew so little about, you know, what was actually underway. But I knew this. I knew that the, 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 the pharma system, my mother was also addicted to, to a sleeping pill called Doradin, and I used to have to break it in half every night, biting it, because the line, you know, the scoring of the pill that allows you to break it easily is very shallow. They don't want you to break it in half. They want it to become pulverized, so you have to order more. And why does it even have a scoring? Is that so somebody can take a half? No, that's so somebody can take one and a half, and then two and a half, and then three and a half, uh, because that's the way these, these addictions work. So I knew that we were in a, a, an ugly commerce with pharma industry. And that pill, Doradin, not legal anymore, uh, caused psychosis. That's why it's off the market. And boy, did it cause psychosis in my mother. And so I came out highly skeptical of consumer products, of which pharma was, was one of them. And, uh, and I came out, uh, you know, went through a university of adversity, like a lot of other kids. You know, uh, son of an alcoholic, I wasn't that, but the son of an alcoholic or the kids of an alcoholic. No, when dad comes home and opens the beer directly from the car, ah, it's going to be one of those nights. You know, you're predicting human behavior all the time in those high-stakes situations as children. Millions of others, not just me, millions of other kids predicting human behavior. And that became my career. I developed a system for that's used by the U.S. Capitol Police, one for the CIA, one for the Marshal Service, on predicting whether threateners would act on their threats based on many tiny elements. That's exactly what I was doing at 10 years old. Same thing. And so that's a little, a, a little uh, nutshell journey. And then later I, to, to carry it to, to where it makes sense to your audience, I then uh, began to advise uh, public figures on on the early signs of danger. I, I, this is a, it'll seem like a fractured story, but I, I got appointed by President Reagan to his Department of Justice Advisory Board. I was the youngest appointee ever. He was the oldest president. Uh, I developed systems for many government agencies and all of it, even in my telling now, it seems improbable and impossible, but that's the, that's the way the story went. And, uh, and then formed my company, and that became a big company, nearly a thousand employees, then sold it, then bought it back, and on and on. So that's the, the short narrative. I hope it makes some sense to somebody. It, make, it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it, it's very interesting that you were in it. So there were some number of people that very early on, I just want to go back to that, to, to where, we, where we started, that you advised on there's, you know, basically no threat from yes, this no, virus. No risk from the virus, right, yes, very right, limited. Right, right. Yeah. And so how did they react to that, given the everything that we've just been talking about was going on? Well, my clients are almost all um, major cultural figures, iconic public figures, and at risk. That's why they would become, you know, our business is anti-assassination. How did they react to this message? Well, in the first yeah. round, uh, I was not competing with the largest marketing campaign in the history of human beings, which is what this became. 
and it led to the largest consumer, the most financially successful consumer product in world history. There was never a consumer product that was given to billions of people all in a short period of time. This is far more uh, successful financially than, say, Coca-Cola. Uh, and the CEO of Coca-Cola is now on the board of Pfizer. Uh, uh, why that would be is because of international distribution expertise that he brought to the company. Uh, but they reacted um, with relief, some relief, but within a month or so, the, the narrative in this big marketing campaign, marketing fear, I don't mean marketing the, the vaccines because there weren't vaccines yet, but certainly marketing that the only solution is vaccines, that was certainly part of it. Uh, then I just couldn't compete. I, I did reports every month during that period and eventually I, I, I did one that said, I'm not comparing flu to COVID because that was forbidden speech. You couldn't compare flu to COVID. But I do want you to know that everything I'm listing here happened in 2017 at the time of the flu pan, uh, epidemic in the United States. Uh, people were told not to come to the hospital. Tents were set up outside of hospitals. Refrigerator trucks outside of hospitals to deal with deaths. And uh, it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't unheard of that all of this was happening. That report was downright unpopular with some people. Because even though I, I said I'm being very careful not to compare the flu to, the, the, uh, to COVID, you couldn't even have them in the same sentence because of the new issue that we're all dealing with, which is adjacency. You know, so I say this, well, Trump said that three months ago, so you must be a Trump supporter. Oh, hey, hang on a minute, I didn't say anything about Trump, but you know, oh, you say this, well, that's adjacent to QAnon. I beg your pardon? I'll give you an example. I was with a dear friend of mine, and we were talking about these issues. And, uh, and he said to me midway, are you, you, an, you anti-vaxxer? And I said, what is that? And uh, he said, you know, against gun control, never listens to anything. W what? Back up? Against gun control? What does anti-vaxxer have to do with gun control? But it all got conflated together, and it's adjacent. Some people who were anti-vaxxers maybe were against gun control. I don't know where it comes from, but the anti-vaxxer was the, the villain of the moment. It sounds like all the things that are against the correct TM, trademark, yes. view. <laughs> Yes. Um, all got conflated into one thing. There's something called Trump derangement syndrome has yes. been described. Then some people said, well, I think that became COVID derangement syndrome. There's something called COVID derangement syndrome. Then there's like Elon derangement syndrome. There's all these um, extreme reactions, right, to what, whatever you may think about the situation, whether it's Trump or COVID or Elon or whatever. There, there's this incredibly disproportionate reaction mm. yes. that is somehow manifest. Um, is that through these tools of consensus formation, manipulation, propaganda? Is, that, is it something else? And, and how is it that people can get it in their minds that just doing the opposite, for example, I, I couldn't believe, a few people told me, some policy is just being set that's just the opposite of what the Trump administration sure. had. Yes. And I said, that's impossible. No one would make policy like that. That would be disa potentially disastrous, right? You know, eventually I was convinced that at times that that, that is the case. Well, it's, yes, these, this is part of those tools uh, of propaganda, and we could say marketing sounds better than propaganda, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it's selling ideas. And we know it works. We know that it's at the center of advertising, of course, and always has been, of selling uh, of in elections, selling candidates. 
but it is the same, the, the same tools. And I think on the issue of, you said, could policy be made because it was the opposite of Trump? Well, for sure, we have a good example. The minute Trump said hydroxychloroquine and the minute he said ivermectin later, then those two things were, were suddenly poisons. And hydroxychloroquine is a prescription drug that's been around forever, is, is prescribed every single week. Ivermectin, much more so, billions of doses. Uh, the, you know, won the Nobel Prize in, in uh, biology and, and, you know, is a, is a very safe uh, and widely used medication. About 30% of countries right now are using it right now for COVID. And so, uh, but Trump said it, and when he said hydroxychloroquine, that was the end of hydroxychloroquine. So that is, is an element, uh, I'm not making this about Trump, it's just an element of hostility and utilized division. All totalitarian governments benefit from division. You do not want all the people feeling the same way. And what I would tell you is the moment you know it's working perfectly is when the citizens enforce it, not the police. It's the citizens enforcing the mask mandate, for example, running up to you on the street and saying, what's the matter with you? You're not wearing a mask. The anger, the hostility inside businesses, if you're masked, not only were you not wearing it, but it, it wasn't high enough. The stewardess, the flight attendant would tell you, raise it up, you know, I can see your nostrils. All that hostility, you know then that a marketing program has worked perfectly. I, I frankly didn't understand how um, how much of a herd mentality we have mm. as human beings. I didn't yes. grasp it remotely until somewhat recently. And so there's this, there's this emergent property that comes out of that. So you, you, you see it a bit of fear, but then some people believe it and then they feed it back to you. And you might even start believing it, even though initially you didn't because you were just trying to control people or something. And it can, so yes. there's like, almost like a vicious cycle that happens. It is, and there is clearly a, uh, you know, there's an element of we are social animals, and, uh, and there's an element of, uh, of the herd. There's a beautiful quote at the end of uh, uh, Robert Kennedy's book, The Real Anthony Fauci, which is about much more than Anthony Fauci. And it's a quote from someone else, who, a playwright, and he talks about the fact that if you can get the cattle to start stampeding, it becomes just a tiny influence you have to cause to one of them to get them to turn, and then to one over here to get them to turn again. Because when they're already stampeding, the analogy being when they're already in fear, um, it's then very easy to say, uh, oh, we shouldn't get on trains? Okay, we won't get on trains. Canada, right? You couldn't get on trains or buses or airplanes uh, without proof of vaccination. Well, it turns out that since these vaccines uh, do not stop transmission, the entire premise was flawed. And it turns out that Deborah Burks, as one example, has written in her book that they knew it didn't stop transmission. They knew it wasn't even tested to stop transmission, the mRNA vaccines. So as soon as you knew that one thing, everything about the, what was imposed upon citizens all over the world was flawed, was broken. As soon as you knew that, uh, that contact transmission was not an issue in terms of, of this virus, then everything about the spraying of the door handles and the hotel rooms with the remote controls covered in plastic, and it's still going on today. I still check into hotels that say for your protection, we've sanitized the room. Uh, hand sanitizer itself was worse for you than no hand sanitizer, just as a general thing. It's ultimately alcohol that moves through your skin. You can overdo it. And not good for kids, they can overdo it. So what didn't happen is government saying, hey, we've learned something new and ever backing up. 
And as soon as that didn't happen, you have to really, you know, it, they lose credibility. Because the right thing to do is we've learned this does not stop transmission, so sorry about those things we told you were a good idea. We're going to stop those now. But of course, double down. And, uh, you know, in, I, I live in Hawaii, and the governor's order in Hawaii around, uh, around COVID during the lockdowns was surely the strictest in the country because they were an island and they felt they could keep this thing out. So you could walk on the beach for exercise, but you couldn't sit down. You couldn't stop. Well, of course, exercise includes stopping. It's not just constant movement. Uh, and, and, and then there were the essential businesses, and they listed the essential businesses in the, in the governor's order. And one of them was uh, fabric stores. Can you guess why? Why were fabric stores essential businesses? Oh, for the masks. To make masks. Right. But, they, but you couldn't go to the fabric store without making an appointment online, and you could never have more than three people waiting, because of course, if there's a line forming outside the fabric store, they're all gonna die right away from COVID. And so, madness. Divorced families could not transfer the kids between the father and the mother. Uh, all forms of transportation, bicycles, motorcycles, cars, all forms of transportation were prohibited unless they were related to an essential function. What was an essential function? Liquor stores, yes. Churches, no. Madness. You know, true madness. And yet, I'm going to your, your main point about sort of herd mentality. I also learned that you look around and you see people in the car alone wearing a mask or two, and you say, oh, wow, we are really divided here in terms of our, our, our critical thinking. And what would all governments like to get rid of? First and foremost, skepticism, critical thinking. And uh, they succeeded. So let's talk about this fear mechanism, because this, this is your thing. What is it that, that, that makes us seemingly become so irrational? When you are afraid, you'll take any train that's leaving the station, even if it's not going where you want to go. And so it, it, it definitely disables our ability for critical thinking. And there's, uh, I'm just going to put a big, bold line between the two kinds of fear. There's true fear, which is a signal in the presence of danger. You see it, you smell it, you hear it, you sense it, and you react to it. And often you react to it before you even know. A good example would be somebody you know, going like this, and they don't even realize what they're doing is there's a bee in their hair. Uh, they don't say, ah, there's a bee in my hair, I'm gonna raise my left arm and make the bee get out of my hair. It's, it's happened already. And I have many examples of, of, in my books of people who had reacted very in, intelligently and wisely before they even knew what they were reacting to consciously. And there's plenty of those. And uh, because the, the, the body has a nuclear defense system uh, when it's true fear in response to something in your environment. Then there's unwarranted fear which is something from your memory or your imagination. That is highly programmed by, by media, by culture. You're told what to be afraid of by parents. You know, be afraid of this kind of thing. Uh, and and you, those you react to generally irrationally. I'll give you a fast example. Uh, because it's, it, it's counterintuitive what I'm gonna tell you, but a woman is in a building like this, 10-story building, and she's leaving work late at night. Elevator door opens, and there's a man inside who causes her fear. She's afraid. What does she do? She talks herself out of it. I don't want to be that kind of person. It's just because he's Hispanic. That's unreasonable. What, because of the way he's dressed, that's unreasonable. And she gets into a steel soundproof chamber with someone she's afraid of. 
So there's not an animal in nature that would even consider that. So that's the other side of this equation, which is that we will override what we should actually be afraid of. And I, I'll, I'll posit an example here. Should we be more afraid of COVID, a, uh, a, a virus that has a statistically a 0% chance of having any consequential effect on our children, unless they're already sick, but on healthy children, 0% chance of death, for example. Uh, even my age and my health, I'm 68, but I'm healthy. I went through COVID as you did and everybody in this building did, and, uh, and it just wasn't that big a deal. I'm not saying it wasn't a big deal for, for older people. You know, fear is a very unusual way that once you break the nature of it, nature being the animal, you know, the antelope, here's that twig break uh, in Africa, it does not say, oh, it's probably nothing. It, it runs right away and then d determines later on if it was worthwhile, if it was a lion or it wasn't a lion. But what the antelope doesn't do is that I say, let me tell you a story about a lion. And the antelope doesn't go, oh, and go running away. It doesn't take a narrative and use the narrative in their head to give ourselves the fear signal. Very quick thing is that when it is true fear, we get uh, adrenaline, for example. That's the famous hormone. The less famous hormone is, uh, is the brain chemical uh, cortisol. And cortisol prepares the body for combat. It sends blood to the arms and the legs. It, it hardens the muscles. Uh, and it uh, causes the blood to clot more quickly in case I'm stabbed or opened up in some way. And that's a great, wonderful, you know, uh, resource to have. The problem is it's toxic. And so if you stay in cortisol, because there's another news story, because there's another, oh, look, there's a picture of refrigerated trucks holding bodies down at the hospital. Well, I ask people, did you think those refrigerated trucks were built for COVID or did they already exist? Weren't they used in 2017 for the, for the flu uh, pandemic that year, uh, epidemic rather that year? Meaning these are not new things, but all put together in a narrative for us, the, the trucks at the hospital and the deaths and the old people and the this and the that, it's terrifying. And we'll accept information and trigger the cortisol. And then the cortisol makes you nearly irrational. You know, it, it's, it's, it's prepared the physical body for combat, but when combat doesn't come, it's very bad for you, toxic, if you live in fear, as many people do in wartime. They live in fear, uh, and, uh, and it's bad for you, and, and it's certainly bad for critical thinking. So the herd reacts in, in, in highly predictable ways, and, uh, uh, and individuals, uh, are, you know, what we ought to be is skeptical all the time, right? Skeptical of government. Carl Sagan, a great scientist, said that, uh, that you know, the framers of the Constitution wanted us to be well-informed population and skeptical, and if we're not, then we are subject, then the government controls us instead of us controlling the government. His last interview before he died. Right, and you know, but what you're basically telling me here, I hadn't thought about it this way, but not only are we sensitive to what others around us think, especially mm. when we think it's a general view that, that, that the people around us have or society has. But there's this, so that, that already exists and that's already pretty profound. But now we add this fear element where you have this, you know, let's say the cortisol levels are spiking and now you have this irrationality associated with that. Yes. So uh, you can kind of imagine <laughs> the, the monomaniacal Mm. focus on COVID response like this is we, we imagined it to be this this uh, 
you know, I, I don't even know why. Like this was this it was the ultimate demon, you know, that had to be. Yeah, like if we lived in a village, uh, you know, a thousand years ago somewhere, the witch doctor would, you know, shake some beads over us and tell us, oh, the snake is in your soul, and and now that can move around through everybody very quickly. And I think that uh, you you mentioned the monomaniacal focus on one thing. In that time, uh, in the first year of COVID. About three million American, Americans died of other things. And during lockdowns, how did they die? Alone in the hospital. And that is a far more profound injury to the society than the, the deaths from COVID, which the deaths from COVID, you know, there's a report in Israel in the second year of the pandemic, and they said that uh, from a hospital there, the main hospital, they said that uh, they felt that everybody who had died from COVID in that year would have died in that year anyway. Right, they, they would have died ultimately right. if you're in nursing homes. Just we, maybe a bit later. Or that's some correct. Other a bit cause. later, right. a different thing. But yeah. to cause three million Americans to die alone in the hospital is is such a dark result. And then to cause the breaking, really the fracturing of society through lockdowns. But still today, those three million businesses that closed are still closed. And uh, you know, people. You, you think about a small restaurant and how much people care about it, or a neighborhood business of some kind, and how much people care about it. And then to have that taken away, uh, ultimately for something that wasn't accurate scientifically. W I want to just talk about in historical context. If you look at world history as a pie chart, um, almost all of it is tyranny, and just a tiny sliver. In, in Western nations, America, Western Europe, was this idea of the, the primacy of the individual and, uh, and democracy, uh, different forms of democracy, but not tyranny. That's the point, where the, the people, you know, had, they employed their leaders. Well, that doesn't last forever. Uh, as I say, it's all, tyranny is almost the natural order for human beings. Uh, which is to have a, a king or an emperor or some other kind of ruler tell us what to do and for us to have no say in it. And we, in this generation and in the United States, um, have a different narrative and a different, uh, a, a different reality, but it always slides toward tyranny. It always goes toward tyranny. And for any of us to believe that this is, uh, that this is uh, an anomaly, COVID, no, no, no. What this did is told government all over the world, hey, guys, we've got a new resource. We can just say, stay home. Oh, and don't stand near each other, which means no public gatherings. Don't go to church. And they'll do it. They'll do it. And so all the, the practices that throughout history governments have tried to perfect are now close to perfection because of social media, because of iPhones, and it's discouraging as hell. I wish it wasn't. I wish I could come up with something positive to say about it. But the reality is that that's the direction uh, that Western governments will move in. They won't move in the other direction because once they get a power, it's rarely turned around. It's rarely handed back. And the power of lockdowns, that's a big one. I think there's an unusually large number of people in our society that are aware that something has gone wrong is the only way that such things get fixed. If you're not aware of it, how can you possibly deal with it, right? Which is, I, I find it actually profoundly hopeful um, in a way. And, and also just the, the, the fact that, that, and this is, I think this is helpful in promoting, you know, and, and helping people understand that something is really wrong, mm. is that, that sort of the experts or the authorities were so obviously wrong on mm. so many things. It almost became, it's very hard to imagine things where they weren't wrong. It's very, it's odd actually, 
Yeah. Have you have you thought about that? Uh, I mean, sure. It's bizarrely, they're bizarrely mostly wrong, right? Yes, but yeah. they ha they have a, a a resource available to them, which is being authority figures. Many people in all countries and throughout history respond to authority figures. We're kind of built that way. I, I want to say two things that are hopeful, since I said all of these things that, that are, are, are less hopeful. Um, one of them is that there is a population, uh, you know, a subgroup inside all populations who are skeptical of authority. You, you could say it seems to be a third of the people um, who, who look at, uh, at pronouncements and ask questions and are resistant and are not compliant. And we've had in this last three years, it was uh, compliance, not science that was, was being asked uh, uh, of us. Comply, comply, comply. And so the hopeful thing is that I, I saw in the second year of the pandemic was that the, num the number 17 best-selling book in America was 1984, a 70-year-old book. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. People are interested in reading about 1984 as they intuitively sense these kinds of strategies around them. And uh, so I think that's, you know, that gives me uh, some hope that people are, are interested in, in paying attention. And, and America is this extraordinary experiment in freedom that, uh, you know, that very much deserves to be, to be protected and even fought for. And uh, we tend to think of, of that fighting happening outside the country to outside enemies. That's the way it's promoted to us. You know, we've got to take the fight to them in Iraq and we're fighting for our freedoms and they want to destroy our freedoms. But who really wants to destroy freedoms are people in power, always. In, in all kinds of organizations, that is, that's the reality. And uh, so I, I, I remain hopeful that the tools are here, uh, elections and, uh, and, and, and resistance. You know, did you see that documentary uh, on, on Netflix called The uh, Social Dilemma? The very end of that, of that documentary, one of the guys, I think he was one of the early Facebook creators of these mechanisms and algorithms, and he was asked, uh, what do you see as the, uh, as the eventual outcome of all this? And he answers in a heartbeat without a delay, he says, uh, civil war. And so that's quite a profound thing to say for a guy who was working at Facebook and because they knew that, they, that these, these uh, instruments, Facebook, YouTube, Google, et cetera, what they tend to you know, stir up is the differences between us. You mentioned you know, compassion a couple of times now. And I, you know, one of the, I've observed that one of the very potent tools of uh, social influence uh, these days is this kind of weaponization of compassion. The people who practice these critical theory doctrines, woke, you know, what we call wokeism, that's that's one of the most potent tools. Yes. You know, to, I want to be a good um, person. I want to care about others. Right. I want right. to show you that I'm a good person. Right. And it's not, you know, some of that may be performative. Some of it might be really appealing to the person's genuine compassion. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly. But how does that intersect with this creation of fear? Well, when you are uh, when you're afraid, first of all, your critical thinking is is uh, damaged some, and so you're open to receive this message. In comes the message, which is like etching it onto the tablets, and then uh, once you've accomplished that, it is very hard to get that off the tablets. It is very hard, you know, as difficult as it is to persuade somebody of something, it is far more difficult to persuade them that they've been fooled. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's Twain, right? It I is. We, we, uh, I, we uh, mentioned that periodically on yeah. the show. I think he got yeah. it from me or I got it from him. I don't remember, but, uh, but he was a very good thinker. And I just, you know, say that what, what happened is it's not some giant centralized conspiracy. What happens is if you used to make perfume sprayers, now you make hand sanitizer. If you used to make bumper stickers, now during the pandemic you make the stickers that say stand six feet away. If you used to make any product that can be tangentially involved in this new commerce where all the money is coming from, you do it, you switch. And then once you're doing that, if you're a hospital, for example, and suddenly people aren't coming in for, for elective surgeries, uh, and, you, and, and you're literally sending doctors and nurses home because there's not enough work to do, of course you'll listen to the government when they say, if they test positive for COVID, get them upstairs on a ventilator, we'll pay you $34,000, you do it. You might not know this, but in the PREP Act, you know about the $34,000 if they're ventilated, you know about the $13,000 if they die from COVID in the hospital, you know, uh, a, uh, somebody on Medicare. You might not know that the PREP Act also paid uh, $9,000 for the funeral if you died from COVID. And that made everybody want to make the death from COVID. Forget that she was 86 years old. Forget that she already had other respiratory diseases. Forget that she had two other fatal diseases, COVID. It's got to be COVID because everybody wins from COVID financially. That came down from the federal government rather brilliantly. But that's okay. So that's kind of maybe weaponization of self-interest or, you know, sort of, but, but what about this, this, this compassion piece? Do it for grandma. Yeah. Don't, don't kill grandma. Yeah. Right. I've been thinking about that a lot because that seems like, to, that seems to be one of the most potent tools that's being yes. used by these, you know, so I'm not certain it's compassion, Jan. It, it, it may be um, the, the fear of being put out of the, of the village, which is that it's compliance. Compliance, when you don't comply, let's say you step out of line and, you know, and, and run to the front of the line at the airport or something, everybody will, whoa, what's going on here? This person is not, you know, not in line, quite literally, where the expression comes from. And so there is a tribal resistance to the person who does something uh, that is not compliant. And uh, yes, it's true, it's, it's nice virtue signaling to say, you know, I didn't want the vaccine, but I got it for others. That's a fine virtue signaling, and, or, or you know, a young person wearing a mask uh, can feel like there's no logic in it for them, but they're doing it to save grandma, for example. Or, but, but you know, if you got all the old people together, and that's who we're talking about is, is quite old people, elderly and not fit. If you got them all together, would they have wanted the world to stop and for young people's lives to be broken in the way that they were? Would they have wanted that? I, I kind of wonder. You know, you could say, I'm older, I'm sick, I'm gonna stay home. But I'm not gonna ask everybody else to get out of the way when I wanna go to Whole Foods and, and get my shopping done. But that's what happened in effect. Everybody else get out of the way, everybody stand far away from, I'm the vulnerable one. But the result was we were standing far away from each other and that is an attractive element. Remember, when I talk about government, I'm not saying something anti-American. I'm very pro-American, and have worked in government a great deal, and it's been a, a big part of my career. But I'm talking about all governments, because all governments devolve in this way toward greater and greater and greater control. There is, you know, we had the, the uh, Patriot Act signed after 9-11. Um, it was only for two years. Uh, did it get renewed after two years? Oh yes, it's still going, going strong. 
Can you imagine a law that says, we're going to get rid of that Patriot Act now, and we're going to go back to where we were before the Patriot Act? Politicians and, and government leaders don't do that. That just doesn't happen. They don't hand back authorities that they've gained because they believe that they are good, that they are going to make the decisions in good ways, but every tool that has ever been developed that could assist uh, totalitarian control has been used. There's not a one of them sitting on the shelf dusty. Hmm. Well, unless people broadly say no. Oh, that's right? true. The, the, and that, this is the, what we talked yes. about at the beginning. That's, it's, it seems so simple. Yeah. But you have to be paying attention and you have to not be involved in looking at this device all the time and, and on social media and you have to not be you know, dealing with your own challenges. Look at food addiction in the United States, obesity in the United States. These are profoundly serious problems where almost everything, almost every packaged food has sugar and salt uh, and, 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 and obesity is a huge problem that no society would have accepted in world history because you needed those people to be fit to be soldiers. You needed those people to be fit to dig the graves, to build the buildings, to take care of the elderly. But guess what changed? We now don't need them to be soldiers because war is mechanized. War is remote control. It doesn't matter if you're 220 pounds and have diabetes if you're sitting in a, in a, you know, a, a, a container in, outside of Langley, Virginia, operating remote control drones. And so war will become farther and farther from where there's skin in the game. And I want to tell you a quick thing about the, the history of the hierarchy of weapons started with uh, blood trauma weapons, which is I punch you or I hit you with a rock, but I got to get close to you. As soon as there were distance weapons, bow and arrow, spear, I had a little less skin in the game. The gun, I had no skin in the game if you didn't have a gun. I could face the bear uh, with, with much less risk. And then the remote control drone, even less skin in the game, and on and on. That is the way we've gone. And what is the problem with that? is that there is less incentive to avoid war. Because now you don't have to send your sons and daughters. In the United States, we don't, look at our, we, we took 60,000 prisoners in the Iraq war. And when uh, Schwarzkopf met with his counterpart in Iraq, and they were gonna exchange the documents of their prisoners of war because they would be returning them or negotiating these things, I think they had something like 400 and we had 60,000. It was, a, it was a massive, you know, disproportionate uh, result, uh, in large part because of, of our technology. And so I, I fear for that, that the, that the future of warfare is not um, tempered by the fact that our kids have to go and be killed. Uh, and so it, as it gets more and more mechanized, governments will be far more likely, are far more likely, to engage in conflict. Well, so we were talking, you were talking a bit about how, you know, let's say governments and, you know, trend in this direction, yes. right, towards more control. Power trends in that power, direction. Power yes. trends in that direction. There's a whole book, Anders Kaur wrote a whole book about it called The Concentration of Power, very interesting theories of power. Um, what my, my thought is that a few observations of mine, okay, over the years, um, scale, mm. when, when things get over a certain scale, they want to kind of self self perpetuate. Yes. Centralization. So that's that's one piece. 
Another one is bureaucracies. Bureaucracies seem to self-organize around avoiding uh, individual responsibility. This is this conflagration of, of, of issues, if you will, all kind of all at once. And, and then, of course, there's the, you mentioned, you know, how you became very aware when you were quite young of, you know, how wrong pharma can be or, you know, wh where they can go. Well, there's, you know, we have our media, we have, you know, organs of government, we have large companies, military, pharma, and so forth. The blurring of the lines is much more significant. So, so here we are. Right? Where, where do we go? Well, you just named the three power centers in the United States, um, corporate, government, and media. And never before in our history have they been aligned in the way they are now. And there's a problem with that alignment because the, the fourth estate, your work, was meant to be a check and balance. Uh, and yet today we see no press conference with the CEO of some pharma company where reporters are calling out tough questions, no interviews with tough questions, and I mean zero. Uh, it, it, to take Albert Bourla, the CEO of, of Pfizer, you will not find a single interview where there's any sweat on his forehead. And there, there ought to be because, oh, let me ask you again, Dr. Borla, veterinarian, not, not a uh, doctor for people, but let me ask you again, you want me to inject this into my six-month-old baby, and you want this baby to get 60 of these products injected between now and the end of her life? Because it's meant to be, you know, now it's a yearly vaccine right now, you know, that's required. Uh, it's going to be on the school uh, vaccination schedule program. So that's okay, doctor, but I would like to ask you a lot of questions about this product. I'd like to ask you about the testing. And instead what happened is that uh, the FDA uh, said we're not going to release the safety data for 55 years. Then they went back to court and with Pfizer, and they said, how about 75 years? We'd rather have 75 years to not release this safety data. What are you talking about? And yet the public is unaware of that. They don't know about it, even though you can do a Google search, Washington Post, 75 years, uh, Pfizer safety trials, you, you know, any, any of those will, will find it. And you'll find even a few media stories that, that say you know, that that's outlandish, but it took going to court in order for, uh, for, for a judge to say, no, no, you'll release that more quickly. These are the safety trials for a product you're injecting into all our children, not just a few of them. You're mandating it. Government must be a check and balance for corporations, and the media must be a check and balance for both. And when they're all aligned in the way they are now, we have profound, uh, profound problem. When there isn't these sort of basic checks and questions yeah. that are not even allowed, kind of allowed to ask, right. so it's an anathema, whatever. That's obviously a massive problem. You know, that being said, I kind of, I've been, I've become a student of American history. I didn't know as much, I've learned a lot over the last few years. And, you know, there, there's been quite a few uh, quite, uh, you know, difficult moments where yes. things looked really bad. And even, in, you know, in the founding of the country, I don't think it was a bit of a long shot, frankly. And I just, it, it seems like there's, there's quite a few Americans that are, you know, I guess, seems to me taking this seriously or increasingly more seriously. Is this the opportunity for a check? I mean, that's, that's, I, I actually feel quite optimistic at the moment today, you know, yeah. I'll, have, I'll have other days, but, but no, I, I mean, in general, I, I see that. As well, a, I want to be, I, I want to be, uh, I am optimistic by nature, and uh, I do agree with you that it is an opportunity, because now 
anybody who's, who's in the on position has the capability to step back and say, well, let's not do it quite like that again. And that means often legislation to not do it like that. Might, might there be a process before you decide to lock down the country? I'm using Fauci's words. Wow, lock down the country. People can't go to church. Now, the Constitution, as you may know, it does not have a pandemic exception. It doesn't say, oh, except for pandemics, except for viruses. The, the founding fathers knew about uh, epidemics. They'd had epidemics. They knew about, uh, uh, about the impact of them. And they didn't say, well, in that case, you can close the churches. The churches are in the Constitution, uh, but the liquor stores are not in the Constitution. But the liquor stores were open and the churches were closed. Wow. So I hope if people could you know, more people could wake up to that. It has nothing to do with, do you like Trump? Do you like Biden? Do you believe in vaccines? Do you not believe in vaccines? What an odd phrase. I believe in vaccines. Vaccines are a, a wide group of consumer products. They're not one thing. They're not all the same. Some are dangerous. Some have been taken off the market all over the world. Some have been taken off the market in America. Now they're only given in Africa. So there's a, you know, there's a wide range. There's some nuance here when you use the word vaccine. So should we allow lockdowns again? Should we have a legislative solution to that where if you're going to do a lockdown, there's a process you have to go through? Should it be public health officials making that decision or should it be government leaders making the decision based on advice from public health? I'm, I don't have the answers to these questions, but they are questions that ought to be asked. A year ago, they were prohibited speech. So today, maybe things are advancing a little bit in that I will likely be allowed to say this and you'll be allowed to air it uh, uh, two years ago. Well, at least on Epoch TV. That's yeah. true, by the way. And it's a shame that it's not on, on CNN. You know, I did an interview recently with Chris Cuomo. I did his podcast. Chris Cuomo was not on CNN anymore for all the reasons we, you know, we saw uh, happen. And I asked him, isn't it, free, isn't it wonderful to be free of pharma? We can have this discussion. Because he said a lot of strong things adverse to, in disagreement with, the public health uh, machinations of the last two years. I was very surprised. And I said to him, isn't it great that, we, that you can have this and you're free of pharma, which does 90% of the advertising on cable news. And he said, you know, it wasn't really pharma. I'd like to have that excuse. It wasn't really pharma. It was my concern about what others would think. I think that it would be nice to have the excuse that, yeah, CNN or MSNBC or NBC or whatever alphabet soup you're at, they wouldn't let me. I think it's more often a pursuit of popularity that in the business, you're so sensitive to criticism um, mm. and uh, that it's easier not to say things. And while everybody always says they want to be a fearless journalist, once yeah. you feel the bite of people who don't like what you ask, um, it's one thing to see it in a movie. It's another thing to deal with it in your own life. And I get why people, it, it, it can mollify um, quiet. and you know, George Carlin was so brilliant when he would say, you know, they don't want a critical thinker. Nobody wants yeah. people to be critical thinkers. And that's all I want people to be. Uh, it was, I mean, I got off of it and I called 15 people and said, you're just not going to believe this because I went on that podcast expecting to argue. I couldn't get on anything that, other than more conservative, you know, than Fox, uh, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson or, or, or your uh, show or, uh, or uh, Joe Rogan. 
no, CNN wasn't asking me to come on and talk about, about government misuse of fear. So I did it for that reason, expecting to have a big debate. And instead, he held up my book, Cause Unknown, and he said, this is an important book. And I was very, very surprised at, at many things that he said. Uh, but he was out of the maw of CNN. Uh, and he did say that. And he did say a lot of things that were counter to the orthodoxy, uh, which was great to hear. I've been thinking about how you put an emphasis on people trusting their intuition. Mm. And in a way, I feel like through this, um, to some extent, virtualization of our in, you know, interactions and actually all of our work and everything, it's almost like the, the powers that be want to have their kind of edict or their view to kind of take the place of your intuition. Mm. So explain to me why you are this you know, proponent of intuition, what that is. Is it, is, <laughs> is it real? Is it a construct? Mm. And, and how, how does that fit into, to, into, I don't know, figuring out how to live in this crazy world right now? Well, it's a huge part of independent thinking, for one thing, because you give yourself a, a, uh, a voice that's other than the voice of orthodoxy or the voice of authorities. You know, even today as we're sitting here, I don't know the numbers or the stats, but millions of Americans are not going to work. They're working remotely. The, the laptop class that can work remotely. And that is a, a dream of all governments that, yes, we've got all the citizens, they're all working, but they're not together. Because, you know, getting together, uh, the right of assembly, uh, it, it was a special thing. But on intuition, which is your inner voice, what is it, by the way, first of all? Intuition is the journey from A to Z without stopping at all the letters on the way. It's knowing without even bothering to know why. I am certain that this man is going to hurt me, says a woman who can get away. Or I am certain that this is not somebody I want to work with. Or I am certain that I should go back home right now. Or I should call my family. I should check in. There's a, there's a knowing without knowing why. And when I was doing The Gift of Fear, I looked at the root of the word intuition. And I learned this beautiful thing. The root of it, in tear, means to guard and to protect. So intuition is actually directly linked to um, our, that is a mechanism for our, for our self-protection. And how it ties in, Jan, to a lot of the things we've been talking about today is that people do intuitively know uh, something's not right. Not every person, but many people say, well, wait a minute, I was told this, and then I was told that, and then I was told two masks, and I was told no masks. And I, they, they, they stop being automaton, uh, reacting to things that they're told and just being um, compliant. Uh, not all people, but many people know intuitively. And what I would encourage people to do is to rely on your intuition, of course, in your in your day-to-day -day life because it is the thing that protects you. It's the thing that says, no, not this underground parking lot, not that car, not right now, uh, not this person. And if you listen to that rather than immediately, you know, prosecute your own feelings and say, oh, I don't want to be like that or that's ridiculous. I don't even have a basis for that. My books, and particularly The Gift of Fear, is full of stories where people prevailed only on the basis of listening to their intuition. There was no logical reason for the actions that they took or the resistance that they mounted against uh, somebody who turned out to be, you know, have some sinister intent. And I think the optimistic part of this is that we see in, in Western, you, you know, societies today, uh, you know, Israel uh, was the, was the uh, experimental 
trying ground for, for Pfizer. The Israeli government made a deal with Pfizer that we're going to give this to everybody and we're going to make it really unpleasant if they don't take it. There was the Green Pass, you know, the, an app that if you, didn't, if you didn't show up at the pharmacy, oh, what time? 10 a.m. on Tuesday, CVS Pharmacy, okay, I'll be there. And if you're not, your Green Pass turns red and you're not going to the supermarket and you're not going to the movie theater and you're not going to see a show and your kids are not going to school. That was pretty severe. And, but now in Israel, Right now, today, there are major demonstrations against the government. Doesn't matter what it's for, it's a wake-up of, we don't buy everything you tell us. The idea is that listening to yourself, which is often called the voice of God in you, listening to yourself is, of course, as valid as listening to some bureaucrat 2,000 miles away. Why not? Why not give it to yourself first and say, intuitively, that doesn't sound right to me. That's how we vote. That's how we buy consumer products. Are we programmed like crazy? Yes, it's not totally free will. But to honor, to elevate the voice in your head, you've got all these radio stations, elevate the one that is your natural resource designed to keep you safe and to help you make decisions. Uh, so that's my optimistic ending is listen to your intuition in general and when people feel Which I see a lot of people are feeling wait a minute something doesn't feel right here Well a lot isn't right here, but it starts with an intuitive feeling that leads you to the to the question That I encourage people to ask and to have no forbidden speech Well Gavin de Becker. It's such a pleasure to have had you on Thank you very much. I've been watching the show wanted to be on and uh, and you've been giving a real gift by having guests on who are engaged in prohibited speech. Thank you all for joining Gavin DeBecker and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Hey everyone, if you enjoyed that last episode, you should check out our new documentary, The Unseen Crisis, Vaccine Stories You Were Never Told. And you can find it at unseencrisis.com.